Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. There is a fairly well-known story, at least among preachers. I think it may even be true. might be embellished a little bit, but somebody somewhere, I think, actually did it. As the story goes, there was a minister who preached a sermon. Uh, the next Sunday, he preached the same sermon. And the third Sunday, he preached the same sermon he had already preached twice. And finally, somebody said to him, oh, do you have another sermon? Uh, why are you preaching the same sermon three times in a row? And he says, well, as soon as the congregation gets it, I'll go on and preach another one. And I've often been impressed with that and thought, maybe someday I ought to preach the same sermon three times in a row. Well, actually, the same truth, not the same passage, is repeated three times in a row in Second Peter chapter 3. And I've been following Peter, and so for the last two Sundays, I've basically preached the same spiritual truth and I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to do the same thing for a third time. Now, I'm tempted to say, do you remember what the truth was I preached for the last two Sundays? I was tempted to pass out three by five cards and had you write down what you remembered from the last two Sundays, only I wasn't sure I could take the shock, so I didn't do that. Now, seriously, turn to Second Peter. And look at verse 17. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. I want you to notice that it says, therefore. Now back up and look at verse 14, therefore. And back up a little further and look at verse 11, and it says, therefore. Now throughout these verses, Peter is talking about the future. He's talking about the fact that the Lord is going to come back. And earlier in the book, he mentioned that false teachers were denying that. So at the end of the book, he's really pressing home that the Lord is coming back. And beyond that, the day of the Lord is going to take place. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So permeating the end of this book is the spiritual truth that the, of things that are going to happen in the future. And these little therefores indicate things that we ought to be doing in the present in light of what's going to happen in the future. So I have sort of sloganized that into this little phrase that the future determines the present. 
and I said that two Sundays ago, I said that last Sunday, and I'm going to say it again. One more time. You ready? The future determines the present. Now, what's different, it's the same basic truth, but what's different is the way he talks about that. So in verses 11 to 13, he says, if the earth is temporary, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and the Lord is coming back, that we as believers should live godly, righteous lives. That's one application of that truth. In verses 14 to 16, he says, believers should be diligent to be peaceful, spotless, blameless, and use the delay of his coming as an opportunity to tell people about the Lord. In all of these cases, the idea is the future, meaning the Lord is coming back, should determine the present. And the present, in the present, we should be living godly, righteous lives, being at peace, and using this as an opportunity to tell other people about the Lord. But he's not done. There's more. And therefore, he says in verse 17, therefore, but the therefore applies way back earlier in the passage to all of these things that are going to happen in the future. The Lord's coming back, therefore. In verses 17 and 18, he says, there are two things we should do in the present in light of what's going to happen in the future. So what I'd like to do is concentrate on those two things that we should be doing in the present. They're very simple. He says in verse 17, Therefore, since you know this beforehand, that is, since you know what's going to happen in the future and you know it before it's going to happen, beware. So the first thing he says is in light of the future, beware. Now we need to parse this a bit. The word beware actually means be on guard, to watch. And the idea here is to be forewarned, is to be forearmed. You need to beware, you need to be on guard. He says in verse 17, lest you fall. The word fall is used in the book of Acts of a navigator falling off a straight course. So the image behind that word is you're a navigator on a ship, but you fall off course. You're not going toward the goal. Only in this case, he says in verse 17, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. Ah, that is particularly interesting because back in chapter 1, he acknowledged that they were steadfast. But I want to probe that word just a bit. It's deeply significant. It means to be fixed. It means to be firm. It means to be established. Now, this is really interesting to me. He acknowledges, way back in chapter 1, and in this verse, that they are established, that they are firmly fixed in their faith. And yet he says, beware. 
beware. Beware of what? Well, he says, beware lest you could be led astray by the error of the wicked. Interesting. You can be established. You can think of yourself as, I'm a mature Christian. And yet he acknowledges the possibility that a mature Christian can be led astray by the wicked, by the error of the wicked. Now what is really interesting to me is that the scripture throughout the New Testament talks about this in a very interesting way. For example, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I am praying that I can come to you in the will of God that I may establish you. Then at the end of the book, he says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as you do, so that he may establish your hearts. I actually read 1 Thessalonians. I got ahead of myself. Romans 16 says, so now he is able to establish you. But the point is the same in both verses, and that is, he says in chapter 1, I want to come so I can establish you. And he says in Romans 16, it's the Lord who establishes you. Now, I got ahead of myself, but the same thing occurs in the book of Thessalonians. In chapter 1, he says, I sent Timothy, our brother, and minister of God, and fellow laborer in the gospel, to establish you. Then he says at the end, which I read just a minute ago, may the Lord establish you and your hearts blameless in holiness before God and the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is fascinating to me is that he says, I want to come to Rome and do it. The Lord does it. I, want, I sent Timothy to Thessalonica so he could establish you, but the Lord does it. And Peter is saying the same thing. So he says um, in 1 Peter, May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you suffer a little while strengthen and establish you. So he says the Lord does it. And in his second epistle he says, And you need to establish yourself. Very interesting. I think this is really a reflection of what is taught throughout the New Testament, and namely that if we're going to grow spiritually, we have a part and the Lord has a part. That's all that's going on here. But the point in this case is you need to be aware. You need to be on guard. Now, the Lord can is involved in this. The Lord grants you grace to do this, but you've got to put forth effort to do it. You have to do it. Others can help, but you have to do it. Paul can help. Timothy can help. But you, he says to the believers in the first century, have to do it as well as the Lord. Now, back to 2 Peter. In this passage, he says, you need to be on guard from being led astray, that you could fall, you could be led astray by the error. 
which means the, the people have wandered away. They've gone into error of the wicked. Now that is no doubt a reference to chapter 2 where he talked about false teachers who were denying the second coming of Christ. It is this word wicked on top of that can refer to the violation of laws of nature or conscience. The false teachers speak evil of the authorities and they seek to deny the Lord's coming. Someone has suggested that they can lead you astray by their teaching or by their example. And probably both could be involved. So, Peter says, you need to be established in the present truth. That's in chapter 1, verse 12. Yet he tells them to, he says they are established in the present truth, yet he gets to this passage and he says, but you need to beware lest you fall from your steadfastness. Now, can a mature believer get off into error? Can a mature believer be led astray? Absolutely. So all of us are in danger of being led astray from our steadfastness, from being established in the faith. Now, there are young Christians who know the Lord, but they're not, they're not established as they grow, they get established. I'm not talking to young Christians. This passage is talking to established Christians. Do you consider yourself established? Be careful. Be aware. Because you could be led astray. Even mature Christians can be led astray from their steadfastness. Now let me just uh, assure you that that does not mean that you can be led astray from your salvation. You can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your steadfastness. You ever known a believer to grow and then all of a sudden just get away from the Lord? That's like asking, how long have you been around a church? Right? So did that person lose their salvation? Well, not according to the scripture. Uh, in John 5, 24, he says, if you've trusted Christ, you will not come into judgment. John 5, 24. If you've trusted Christ, you're not going to be judged concerning your eternal destiny. But you can lose your steadfastness. So we should be aware, be careful that we not lose our steadfastness. Now, uh, this probably refers to these false teachers back in chapter 2. So, actually, part of what is involved in this is that you be careful who you get real close to. Now, that gets tricky, because if you're influencing them, that's okay. Just be on guard that you not get too close to people that lead you astray. That's the point. Believers, beware. Be on guard spiritually. One fellow said, my mind is not a bed to be made and remade, but on certain things it is firmly made up. So is your bed made up? 
and don't let anybody disturb it. Now, there's a second thing he tells us in this passage, in light of the future. He says in verse 18, But grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory both now and forever. Amen. The first thing he says is, be on guard. The second thing he says is, grow. 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 Be on guard to not maintain your steadfastness, but don't just be steadfast, grow. Now that means keep going, increase, make ground. Somebody has said the spiritual life is like a bike. If you stop, you fall off. So grow, don't stop. Don't just remain steadfast, grow. Depend on the Lord for the ability to do that. I sometimes quote other preachers, usually try to keep them short. But I want to quote a preacher who lived a long time ago. And it's rather long, but it's so well done that I think I'm going to do it anyway. This is from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's sermon on this passage. He says this, There is no such thing at all uh, as growth in grace. If you understand the word grace as signifying free favor and the love of God toward people, there is not, nor can there be, any growth in that at all. The moment a sinner believes and trusts in his crucified God, he is, by the grace of God, then and there justified and complete in Christ Jesus. And if he lives until his hair is gray, he will never be more justified, he will never be more beloved than he is the very first moment he believed in Christ. As soon as ever I have vital connection with the Lamb of God, I am in grace. Let me live on. Let my grace grow. Let my faith increase. Let my zeal become warmer. Let my love be more ardent. Yet I shall not be more in grace than I am, than I was before. God will not love me more. He will not have a deeper and purer affection in his heart to see me than he was from the very moment I turned to him. Nor was, will his grace uh, the less justify me, the less accept me the first moment when I came to him with all of my sin than I shall do when I stand before his throne. They are... Uh, they are at any one time as much justified as they are at other times. Give me to be justified today than I am justified yesterday, and I will be justified tomorrow. As soon as I put my trust in the Savior, I become complete in grace so far as that was concerned. I am made perfect in Christ Jesus. I cannot be more perfect. I cannot in any respect grow in grace. I cannot receive more justifying grace. I cannot uh, receive more pardoning grace, for I have had it all at once, and so I became perfect in Christ. Am I confusing you? 
Doesn't that text say grow in grace? And I just read you a long quote that says you can't grow in grace. Did you get it? If you mean by grow in grace that I'm going to get more grace than God's already given me in the sense that he justified me, he's forgiven me, he accepts me, you can't get any more of that grace. You got it all. You've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Now, to redeem Spurgeon, let me read you the rest of what he said. He says, the text does not say anything about grace growing. It does not say that grace grows. It tells us to grow in grace. There is a vast difference between grace growing and our growing in grace. God's grace never increases. It is always infinite. It cannot be more. It's always everlasting. It always bottomless. It's always shoreless. It cannot be more. And in the nature of God, it cannot be less. The text tells us to grow in grace. We are in a sea of God's grace. We cannot be in a deeper sea, but let us grow now that we're in it. Now, I know that was long and a bit cumbersome, but I just was so impressed. The grace is not going to increase, but I'm going to grow in it. Not into it, in it. Now, if that hasn't confused you enough, let me see if I can clarify all this. You know we are saved by grace. Ephesians 2.8. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, who died for our sins, arose from the dead, and God saves us by grace. That means God did us a favor. I don't work for it. I don't earn it. Jesus died. Jesus arose. Everything depends on what he did, and I simply trust his payment. That's grace, right? Matter of fact, the Bible goes so far as to say the gift of God is eternal life. We are justified freely by his grace. Take freely of the water of life and drink it. It's all free. Now, once you're in grace, the grace can increase, but you can avail yourselves more and more to it. So, I once had a professor say, growing in grace is growing in my realization that his sufficiency is good enough to meet my insufficiency. That, I think, captures it. I don't get more grace. There, God doesn't have more grace to give. I just avail myself of the grace that's already there. Ah, I think that got it. You got it? God's grace is abundant. One author said, growing in grace often means experiencing trials and even suffering. We never really experience the grace of God until we're at the end of ourselves. So the grace of God is endless. What we have to do is tap into it. We're in it. We need to tap into it. Let me give you the experience of the Apostle Paul. 
lest I should be exalted above measure, an abundance of revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. If you want to grow in grace, the first thing you have to do is recognize your weakness, that you need it. It's just like getting saved. You don't, righteous people don't get saved because righteous people don't think they need it. It's sinners who say, you know what? I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. You're a candidate. I was an evangelist for years and the hardest thing I had to do was not getting people saved. That was easy. The hard part was getting them lost because they all came in thinking they were in great shape. So I had to convince them they were sinners so that they would say, oh. And the same thing is true of Christians. The problem is we think, I can handle this. And that's why you need to say, oh. The Lord's going to bring things in my life that I can't handle to teach me I need His. Is there anything going on in your life right now you can't handle? That was put there by divine design to teach you that you can't handle life without grace. So Paul said, I had a thorn in the flesh and I couldn't deal with it. And I said, Lord, get this thing away from me. And he didn't do it. I asked him three times, and he didn't do it. Finally, after three times, he said, tell you what, Paul, I'm going to leave the thorn. I'm just going to give you the grace to deal with it. Say, boy, that's hard. No. If you think that's hard, you've never had the experience. Because if you ever once taste what this is like, you won't mind the thorn as much. Say, that man has lost his ever-loving mind. Did you hear what that preacher just said? Yep. Let me read you the rest of what Paul said. He said, Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. One of the finest lessons you can learn to grow in grace is that you need grace. One of the finest lessons I could teach you is the Lord's coming back, and that ought to affect you in the present. How should that affect you in the present? It affects you in the present because you need to grow, and in order to grow, you need to know you can't handle it all by yourself. And once you taste of the Lord delivering you, once you taste of praying and seeing God work, then when problems come along, you say, you know what? I'm going to glory in this. It's another opportunity to see the Lord work. Yes, yes. That's growing in grace. Thank you, God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. And they no sooner crossed the border, so to speak, than the Egyptian army was hot on their heels. 
Now they kept moving until they came to the Red Sea, and guess what? They had no means to cross the Red Sea. And Moses says in the book of Exodus, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He's not talking about the forgiveness of sin. In the Old Testament, the word salvation again and again and again and again simply means deliverance, which is what the word means. Moses is saying, hang on, don't panic. I don't, well, you're caught between the Egyptian army and the deep blue sea instead of the rock and a hard place. What are you going to do? I don't know. I just know we're going to trust the grace of God and we're going to get out of this somehow or through it. And the sea parts. And the sea parts. And they walk across dry shot. And then the sea decided to come back together again and just swallowed up the whole Egyptian army. <laughs> That's the grace of God. You are constantly depending on the grace of God for everything. everything. For everything. Amen. So we are strengthened by grace. I've been reading you from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It also says that in 2 Timothy 2. God's grace enables us to endure suffering. That's the passage I've been reading. Grace helps us to give. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So it's grace, my friend. It's grace. It's grace. Someone has written grace when the sun is shining. Grace when the sky is black. Grace when I get unkind words. Grace on the too smooth rack. Grace when my duties go all wrong. Grace when they seem to go all right. Grace when it's gladness and praise and song. Grace when I have to fight. Grace when the saved ones don't act saved and lay all blame on me. Grace when the help I've asked and craved seems to deny, be denied by thee. Grace when the midnight hour tells. Grace when the storm is nigh. Grace when I'm healthy, strong, and well. Grace when I come to die. It is grace. It is grace. It is grace. Have I made the point? You got it? What do you need? For what? Everything. I was not planning on doing this, but... Put your finger, I'm not done. Put your finger in 2 Peter 3. But I want you to turn to Psalm 50. Uh, in my personal time with the Lord, this morning, I went through Psalm 50. And I saw something and I thought, I need to preach on that. And... I wasn't planning on doing it today, but I'm going to preach on this. And I, let me tell you about this passage. This passage about, is about God judging. And what he says is, you're bringing sacrifices. That's what they were supposed to do. But he didn't like the way they were doing it. So uh, look at verse 8. Uh, I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices, for your burnt offering, which is continually before me, I will not take a bull from your house. God says, you know, you're giving these sacrifices. I'm not going to accept them. Why not? He said, verse 12, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. 
I don't need your sacrifices. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Why? Well, the world is mine in its fullness. He says, um, let me tell you what my problem with you is. You don't offer thanksgiving, verse 14. Uh, but look at verse 15, and this is why I went here. Here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to go to church and read your Bible and give money, all the externals and rituals of religion. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be thankful. I want you to be grateful. That's what I want you to do. You're giving sacrifices, and you're not doing it with a grateful heart. But look at this. Call me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. That's my gripe, Paul, God says. You don't, you don't call me in the day of trouble. Now, that's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 12. I want you to depend on me in the day of trouble. What's your trouble? Call me. Whatever it is, call me. I want to show myself to you. I want to have an intimate, personal relationship with you. Just call me. My grace is sufficient. You can't increase the grace, but you can grow in your dependence on it. Back to 2 Peter. You're to grow in grace and you're to grow in knowledge. In knowledge. In knowledge. And this is knowledge about Jesus Christ. Some people grow in knowledge of the Word of God, but not in knowledge of the God of the Word. Some people understand grace they have knowledge of grace, but they are not very gracious. So we need to grow in grace and knowledge of Him, not just knowledge of the book, but knowledge of Him. So after he'd been saved for 30 years or better, Paul says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. The point is, we need to know the Lord. We need to know the Lord in an intimate and personal way. One pastor wrote, knowledge without grace is a terrible weapon. Grace without knowledge is very shallow. But when we combine grace and knowledge, we have a marvelous tool for building our lives and building the church. It is one thing to know the Bible. It's quite another thing to know the Son of God, the center of the Bible. So, putting these two things together, we're to be on guard and we're to grow in grace and knowledge. So growing in grace and knowledge is the safeguard against going astray. Ah, the point is we need to grow. Grow. Because the Lord is coming back. Because we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Because there's a new heaven and a new earth in the future. We need to, in the present, be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's going to take time. 
why you need to be working on it all the time. As one fellow said, if you buy a fiddle today, you can't expect to give a concert in Carnegie Hall tomorrow. Or as another said, there are some spiritual conditions that cannot be accomplished in a moment. The breaking up of the foul ground takes time. The frost of the winters are necessary as the rains of spring to prepare the soil to be fertile. God has to break our hearts to pieces by the slow process of his discipline and grind every particle to power and mellow us and saturate us with his blessed spirit until we are open to his blessing that he has given us. Oh, let us wait upon the Lord. Open your soul, willingness of spirit, to hear what God has to say. So, we need to grow by simply depending on the Lord. Another said, let Diotrephes say it is good for me to have the preeminence. Let Judas say it is good for me to bear the bag. Let Demas say it is good for me to embrace, embrace the present world. But let every child of God declare with David, it is good for me to draw nigh to God. Psalm 73, 38. One fellow once told of a Christian who was progressing and the proportion of his growth in grace, he would elevate his master. He would talk less about what he was doing, become smaller and smaller in his own esteem, until like the morning star, he faded before the rising sun. Jonathan was willing to put himself in the background that David might be pushed forward. And John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. So, one more time, the last time in this series, the future determines the present. And what it should determine in the present is you would make certain, you guard, you beware of drifting away, falling into error. And you be concerned about being diligent to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you are not growing in grace, that is a disgrace. So let me ask you a question. Are you growing? Are you stuck in a rut? I think a lot of Christians are stuck in a rut. Oh, they go to church. You know, they may even read their Bible once in a while. They may even learn something to spite themselves. That's not the issue. Are you growing? You may look at some others and say, you know, spiritually, they're unstable. They're fickle. I mean, they're on sometimes and they're off sometimes. They're in and they're out. They come and they don't come. You know, you know Christians like that? Talk to any pastor, he can tell you stories. I can, you know? So as compared to them, I'm established. Isn't that what Paul wants, is us to be established? Isn't that what he said? Beware that you leave your firmness, your, you know, your establishment. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. That's not quite the issue. It's are you established and growing? Are you moving? 
Are you stuck in a rut? Are you really growing in the grace of Jesus Christ? In a small church in a small town, an old, old farmer often described himself by saying, well, I'm not making much progress, but I'm established. One day when he was hauling logs in his wagon, the wheels sank up to the axles in mud. Trying as he would, he could not get the wagon out of the mud. Defeated, he sat on top of the logs, viewing the dismal situation. A neighbor who attended the same church as the old farmer happened to come that way. He stopped, surveyed the situation, and said, Well, Brother Jones, I see that you're not making much progress, but you must be content because you're well established. <laughs> now, are you stuck in a rut, or are you moving? That's the message of Second Peter. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that it can't grow, but we can. Thank you that your grace is always available and that we can avail ourselves to it. It upsets you that we don't come to you more often with our trouble. So, Father, may this passage remind us that we need to grow in our dependence upon you for grace. So that no matter what's going on in our lives, we're in constant contact with you because you are a God of grace who loves to share it. In Jesus' name, amen.